So I encourage you, if you're not there, remain there in Hebrews 7, and we will turn and consider this text together. But I want you to remember, if you don't already know, that this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. This event sparked a movement in Europe that brought the Bible with understanding to people, really in a way it hadn't been for centuries. And so then it uncovered the truth of the gospel, this real and glorious good news found in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther himself For him, this Reformation was sparked by a tenacious, unrelenting quest, really to gain assurance. This wasn't about movements as much as it was about his own soul, his own soul to know for certain that he is at peace with God. Even as a faithful and fully devoted monk and priest, Martin Luther was ever aware, maybe you like are this morning, of his failures, his sins, aware of the darkness of his heart. Despite all of his devotion, Martin knew that the more he looked at himself, the weaker his assurances of God's love became. And so it was chiefly from his studies in the book of Romans, Martin Luther uncovered the glorious, the glorious gospel of Christ. That he was, in his own words, as he said, born again, walking into paradise as through open gates. That kind of assurance... It's found in the gospel. is isn't simply for the super devout. It's not for just reformers. This kind of world-changing assurance is found for any that would look to Christ. Look to Christ and his gospel and to his word. Where there one discovers salvation can rest only in Christ alone. This morning as we turn to the text of scripture, we're going to discover the assurance that Christ gives us through a rather mysterious character. Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Only three books in the Bible even mention this figure, Melchizedek, and each reference is rather scant. He appears first in Genesis 14. It's just a few verses about Abraham who's returning from a battle with kings where he rescues Lot, and then he encounters this man, Melchizedek. Then we hear about, after a long time later, from David about Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Again, only a few verses, really a single verse there. And then we come to the book of Hebrews, our text this morning, written many, many, many years later after Melchizedek was on the scene, let alone after David wrote about him. So what's the use, what's the point in understanding the intricacies of this figure, Melchizedek? Well, why, why is this of concern to me this morning? To answer that question, We need to look at the context of this letter, Hebrews, that you're holding or looking at there on your device or in your Bibles. Because from the context here in Hebrews, this is where we discover the pastoral need for God's people. Of course, the people that the author of Hebrews was writing to and even for us this morning. And that need is met by this figure, Melchizedek. See, among some in the church there, there their spiritual growth had regressed. It had stagnated. Stagnated so greatly, there was reason to question if their conversions were even, if they were even indeed genuine. They had become sluggish spiritually, drifting from Christ. Some appeared to be in danger of even turning from Christ 
altogether. And so he warns them as a faithful pastor and shepherd over these folks. And so we encounter what I think must be one of the most terrifying and hope-squashing verses in the Bible. You heard me correctly. Look there at Hebrews 6, verses 46. The danger's there in becoming stagnant in our faith. It's impossible, the Scripture says, Hebrews 6, 4, in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have even shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away... To restore them, again, to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I'll let Matt tackle all the intricacies of that on another morning. You're welcome, brother. But this is the reality. And you read this, and you're like, where is their hope here? What is the pastoral encouragement here to a reality like this? See, as we depend on our own faithfulness, our own ability and resources to hold fast to the end, there is little or no assurance looking there to ourselves. As we turn our eyes inward to our works, our deeds, our motives of our hearts, the completeness or really lack thereof of our obedience, the strength of our faith, the more discouraged we will become the more worrisome our hearts will be, especially if we are already struggling in our soul. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. The author of Hebrews, he knows this too. And being a wise shepherd to strengthen their faith, he doesn't point them within themselves, but he draws their eyes without, doesn't he? Outward and upward, looking to God, the assurance that is found in his salvation, the work that he does. And this is where Melchizedek comes in. Look there at chapter 6, verse 19. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. And note this, having become a high priest forever after the order of that mysterious character, Melchizedek. The surety of our hope and the anchor and the encouragement of our soul that we will actually make it to the end, that we actually see his face, that we should revel before him in these truths we've been singing about this morning, it rests and is grounded and is rooted in Christ alone. This Christ who has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's the deal with Melchizedek? Why this guy? Why did God include this mysterious figure in the Bible? One evident reason is this, to encourage your soul as to the assurance, the security of your salvation, of your hope in Christ alone. That's the big idea as we turn to this text this morning in Hebrews 7. Rediscover the security of your salvation because it depends on the work of Christ Jesus alone, your eternal mediator. So let's now see this in the text. Let's look at the first 10 verses, verses 1 to 10, and we're going to see the pattern and promise of a better priest. The pattern and promise of a better priest. What we first discover about Melchizedek is this. He is a type. Maybe you've heard this before. A pattern. He's a pattern that gives us an outline, portrays for us 
what our Savior would be like once he would come. And now we see something else about what he is like now that he has come through this picture, this portrait given in Melchizedek. He shows us this promise and pattern of a better priest, a better mediator, a better go-between for you and God, or between you and God. We see first Melchizedek's greatness patterned because he was patterned after the Son of God. You see that in those first three verses. You see there as you're just glancing at the text, Melchizedek, he, he has these two names explained, Melchizedek and King of Salem, which those are quotes right from Genesis 14. And then we pick it up in verse 3. This is where we really needle down on what's so distinct about Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.3, it says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. The author of Hebrews here, he picks up on something very peculiar, even as you're reading the Genesis text where we first find Melchizedek, something very peculiar about this character. See, as you remember, you're reading through Genesis, or if you go back and get a time this afternoon just glancing through, all the significant characters in Genesis, they arrive via a genealogy. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so until you get to Noah or Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so forth. But this guy, he just arrives. He just steps into the scene. It's like he had no father or mother. There's no genealogy about him in Genesis. There's no explanation from where he came from or whose family he was or how he became to be a priest of God. And once you encounter this glorious character in Genesis, then he just walks away. Now, this need not be taken, as the author of Hebrews explains for us, that he indeed actually had no father or mother, that historical figure that interacted with Abraham, or that he indeed never did die. He's just highlighting that the Genesis text never mentions these things. Because notice the Hebrews text, what we're studying, says that Melchizedek resembles or is like. Again, it's this picture or type. He is like the Son of God, the one who really does have no father or mother. Why? Because he's God. He really is the one who cannot die or at least remain dead. Why? Because he is God. Genesis presents Melchizedek as this type or mold or picture that shows us something about what the Son of God, our great priest, will be like. So that when the Son of God actually comes on the scene to do his ministry, oh, that's him. That's him. You would recognize him and trust in him. There's this pattern of us looking for a great king who will also be a priest, a priest forever. And it's chiefly this forever priesthood, this remaining intercession that he wields even now for you, his people, that is such an encouragement to our souls. Furthermore, so this is the first distinction about Melchizedek, but then we also find something else glorious about him, about how he's a type and a pattern of Christ. See, he's positioned over Abraham and Levi, these great figures, again, from the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews highlights Melchizedek's significance as we look there in verses 4 to 10. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave the tenth of the spoils. 
This is how great Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the father of our faith, gave his tithe to Melchizedek. Furthermore, as you go on there in Genesis, Melchizedek even goes on to pronounce a blessing over Abraham, the father of the faith, the one who God chose to bless all the nations of the earth. Melchizedek blesses him. And we read there in verse 7 of our text, It's beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. And if that wasn't enough, the Levites, the people of God in Israel who would collect the tithes by God's command, it's as if, as it says in verse 9, as if they even gave their tithes, so to speak, through the loins of Abraham to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture and promise of a greater priest to come, a greater priest who will never relinquish his duties. He'll never be disqualified from serving as a priest. He is a priest forever, a great intercessor who reigns. If the salvation of your soul rests on one like that, what or who could ever undermine the purpose and plan of that priest to bring you to heaven? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God circled where? In Christ Jesus. That's your priest. As we understand, this priest brings a sure hope. He's a better priest, he's a type, he's a pattern, but he also brings a better and more sure hope. Looking now at verses 11 to 19. See, the immediate implication of this, as the author of Hebrews is writing, is the following. If we're to expect another priest of a wholly different and separate line than Levi, the priest from the Old Testament, that means the whole Levitical priesthood and all the sacrifices you you read about in the Old Testament, it was all insufficient. It didn't get the job done. All those waiting in it had pensive fear and uncertainty about where they ultimately stand with God. But the priest intercessor that comes according to the Melchizedekian order, he gets the job done. He secures our hope. Let's see that here. The first thing we see in verses 11 and 12, we see this necessary change of the priesthood. Follow along, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one after the order of Aaron or the Levitical one? Here's his point. If you have perfection, if total fulfillment has come through what the Levites were doing with all of their sacrifices in the temple, if they really do make God's people perfect before God, if you have perfection, you don't need to look anywhere else, do you? It's like this. You and your wife, you go to Burger Batch. Mm. Mm. You go there for dinner, presuming you like burgers, which I happen to just love, by the way. And you order a set of those delicious fries with all of those kind of weird sauces are tasty. And then comes this incredible burger. Oh man. It's going to be lunch after this. 
I still got more to go. Let's go. All right. And that burger that comes, it's almost not right to call it a burger, as if to remind you of hot dogs and grilling out. No, this is different. It's of a whole different nature. This burger is without comparison. It's filling. It's delicious. You've enjoyed that perfect meal, the perfect burger. And then as you pull out of Burger Batch right over there, you see those golden arches of McDonald's. No stomach, no tongue would for a moment consider going back to that place. Especially now once you've been filled with that perfect burger. Having perfection or satisfaction, you don't go back to the lesser thing. You have no need to look anywhere else. We need a priest and a priesthood that can make us right and perfect before him, that we have no need to look anywhere else. That's something the Levitical priesthood could never do. You need another priest. You need another priesthood who can actually make you perfect with God. Furthermore, even when there is a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the way or the law he's going to bring up and how the priest becomes a priesthood or makes this priesthood. Look there, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. See, the whole system is flawed. You need a whole new priesthood, a whole new start. And with a whole new priesthood comes a whole new law, a whole new way for a priest to become a priest. And so you understand this new priest, this better priest, he cannot come from the same deficient line, that same flawed system. If you want an excellent, perfect burger, you can't show up at McDonald's thinking, oh, they changed the menu appearance. I'm going to get a different product. It's the same kitchen. You have to leave the building, go across the street, and go at a whole new establishment. This is what we've done in the gospel. We've abandoned the law. We've abandoned our attempts to make ourselves right with God. And we've gone into the, the gospel house of Christ. Because see, our Lord fits the new priesthood order requirements. As if to go in and it says, no shirt, no shoes, no service, you can't go in. You have none of those, but Christ does and he brings you with him. We have a clean break in Christ from the deficient Levitical priesthood because Jesus did not come from McDonald's. He did not come from that line. Not only did he need to be from a different tribe, but there had to be a different and superior quality about this new priest. And you see it there. The superior quality that was pictured and anticipated by Melchizedek is fulfilled by Jesus. And what is it? He lives forever. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another a priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He wasn't from the lineage of Levi or Aaron. But what was the basis why he was made a priest? By the power of an indestructible life. And so we start to get a picture as to specifically why the Melchizedekian priestly ministry far surpasses the Old Testament that would look to the sacrifices of others let alone the sacrifices of ourselves. Because Christ's ministry, his priesthood, his intercession is eternal. Look there on at verse 17. 
4. So here's the proof. It's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. It's the eternal ministry of Christ that's providing that assurance, that grounding, the security for your soul that makes us perfect, makes you acceptable before God because it makes these far superior results. We look at that. We look at this better hope that's generated by this better priest who lives forever. Forever. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, its uselessness. Why would he say that? For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law and Levitical priesthood here is described as weak, useless. Again, why? What's the text say? Verse 19. For it made no one perfect. Christ's work is a far superior hope to anything offered by the sacrifices of Levi. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice actually and always makes us perfect before God for all time. There is in Christ an abiding perfection you hold because of his sacrifice on your behalf. An abiding perfection you hold on your best Christian days. When you're serving others, when you're loving Jesus, when you're telling others about him, when you're sacrificing of yourself in generosity. And yet this abiding perfection remains upon you in Christ even, even right after you fail. When you yell in anger at your children. When you greedily hold on to your money. When you selfishly neglect your work and responsibilities at home, even at that very moment in Christ, as you've even sinned against him and dishonored this Lord that you love, in Christ you still are perfect. That's the work of Christ on your behalf. Nothing's changed because his sacrifice and his ministry haven't changed. You're not your own priest. You didn't make yourself perfect before God. Christ is. And if he made you perfect, then you are, as long as he is your priest. That's a pretty good mediator, isn't it? Doesn't that provide some insurance, encouragement to you? We see it as it unfolds in verses 20 through 22. This promised priest brings a sure relationship. We've seen this unfold already. Not only does this priest bring perfection, this priest also brings assurance. He will certainly do this because God sealed this promise with an oath. God assured us of the permanence and prominence of Jesus' ministry because God sealed it. He sealed it with an oath. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, quoting from Psalm 110, You are a priest forever. Now what's the significance of an oath from God? Aren't all of his promises trustworthy? They are. But by promising with an oath, the Lord is making his word doubly sure, isn't he? Providing all the more encouragement and assurance for you to rest in him alone. The author of Hebrews, he draws out this very thing in the earlier chapter. 
In chapter 6, God's word is always sure. And then he couples his promise, which is sure, God cannot lie, with an oath. Doubly sure, bound together, something that is obviously unbreakable. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. See, this is what God wanted. He wants to show you how sure his promises are. He knows how hard it is, us fighting sin. He knows the weakness of our own flesh. He says, you need encouragement. I'm trying to give it. So how did he do that? How did he show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose? He says, he guaranteed it with an oath. What's the implication? Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, that's one, and then this oath, that's two, you who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that's set before us. Take courage. Christ, priestly ministry, as the forever priest, wasn't just a passing thought. It wasn't an option he might utilize. Christ mediating ministry to you in the gospel is guaranteed. Note this. It's guaranteed more than any other aspect of God's word. Guaranteed. It's the very term the author picks up on in verse 22. He says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The promise and plan of God in the new covenant to forgive the sins of his people, to give them new life, to live among them. These promises that have been secured for you, guaranteed for you in Christ by the promised work and fulfilled work of Jesus. There's more, than him, there's more here than simply to say the promises of forgiveness and reconciliation, peace with God. It's more than simply say they're a sure thing. Because understand, our priest is taking a personal special role to ensure that these promises get passed down to you because he's your guarantor. See, he's more than simply a mediator, a go-between, between two parties who's trying to make peace. He's certainly that. He's certainly a mediator, but he's more than that. He's a guarantor. The guarantor guarantees the promise because he is willing The guarantor is willing to offer to pay the debt. He's offered to take full responsibility for the one who might fail in their obligation in this agreement. He's going to make sure it comes to pass. In ancient times, this word guarantor was used of one who might even have to pay his own life to fulfill the agreement, the contract. One Bible commentator tied it together this way. He said this, the fact that it is Christ who is living is this living and permanent guarantee, the surety provided by God, who has literally put out our salvation in his hand, means that from here on, the salvation of each believer is Christ's responsibility. He has paid our debts. He has freed us from sin. Through his precious blood, he has bought us and paid for our emancipation. Our confidence must be absolute because it's in his hand, not yours. We have failed God. We have incurred the penalty, the debt of death. And as the guarantee of God's love and favor to us, he himself impersonated 
stepped down, laid down his life, that all the blessings, all the forgiveness, all the mercy of the new covenant would come down to you guaranteed. As we see, this eternal priest brings then a sure salvation. This eternal priest brings a sure salvation. Verses 23 through 25. As we discover with Christ and his superior priestly work, this is not some limited or limited time guarantee, nor is this some kind of lifetime guarantee that when you read all of the fine print, you're discovering all of the ways the company's trying to get out of this agreement. This is truly a lifetime guarantee for the salvation of God's people. And it's not a lifetime guarantee that rests on your life, how long you live. It's a guarantee that rests on the lifetime of the priest, the mediator, as we see, which is forever. Hence, your salvation is forever secure. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Christ is a forever priest. Death will never drive him out of office. Sin will never touch him or corrupt him. He will never leave his post, abandon his role. He forever lives, continuing forever to be the sure intercessor for all who look to faith in him. And the implications of this are mind-blowing as it relates to your assurance. Look there at verse 25. Consequently, okay, this is the big so what about Melchizedek. Consequently, this is what the picture of Melchizedek has been teaching us, teaching us about the ministry of Jesus, our mediator. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save. To save. It's emphatic the way he puts it in the original language. He's able to rescue you, save you, deliver you, secure you, take you home, resting in his love, save to be loved, even when that's the farthest thing you deserved. As your advocate, Jesus saves to the uttermost. More literally, he has the power to save you all the way to the end. He will bring you home with him. He will. And he will not lose you along the way. All those who would draw near to God through Jesus, the smart and the dumb, and all those in between, the holy and the profane, and all those in between, the beautiful and the ugly and all those in between, the longtime believer and the longtime wanderer, all who would look and trust in Christ and draw near by his work alone, he will save you to that final day. All the way to the end, he will complete the work he has begun as sure as he now is alive. Because why? Why is Christ's salvation so sure? Why is he so able to save why are his people so certain to come to full salvation? How can I be sure he won't lose me? How can I be sure that I won't lose myself? How can we be so sure that Christ's salvation is so secure? 
Again, back to verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since, okay, this is the why, he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is it so sure? Because he's always alive. Sure, he died, but he could not remain dead. He had work to do. He had to live. And having died, never to die again, he ever lives, and his ministry will never expire because he never will. He will never pass on. He's always alive. Death tried to take him down. It tried, but it lost. Christ won. He rose, never to die again. But for what purpose? What's it say? Since he always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. He is ever alive to pray for you. To plead his wounds. The wounds on Calvary on your behalf for you. To ensure that God's mercy would come. And will never leave. This is why he lives. This is why he is forever alive. To do his priestly ministry for you. Brothers and sisters that look to him. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan divine, said this in his book, The Body of Divinity. See here the constancy of Christ's love to the elect. He not only died for them, but intercedes for them in heaven. When Christ has done dying, he has not done loving. He is now at work in heaven for the saints, at Grace Bible and at Kingsway and all over this globe. He carries their name on his breast and will never leave praying till that prayer be granted. Father, I will that those who you have given me will be with me where I am. This is Christ's abiding ministry on your behalf. Don't forget or neglect this. And don't let your brothers and sisters in this church forget this either. Battle against the drift. There's probably no greater spiritual good that you can do for one another than tenaciously reminding one another, pointing one another back to Christ in the gospel. To meet and read the scripture together and pray for one another. To weekly pray over the phone with each other. To send text messages throughout the day to a brother or sister with prayer requests or gospel reminders. Or simply, as you gather together as the church or in your small groups or wherever you guys will meet throughout the week, not just to meet, but to really serve, to be present in this way, to be engaged. And what does that look like? Yes, talking to one another, but about spiritual things, pointing one another back to remember Christ, this great mediator we've been meditating on this morning, on what Christ has done for you and done for them. That through your care for one another, that you would be continually, perpetually reminding one another, just as Christ is reminding perpetually, evermore, he's reminding the Father of what he has done on your behalf. May we be reminding one another of the same. That this would be our confidence that we might speak, that we might turn from the sin that we've been engaged in, because we know we've found mercy, as we've confessed this morning. And he's also given us his spirit, the power to put it to death. May we do that for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great mercy in giving us your son, crushing him on the cross where he has borne all of our sin.
doing that thing that we could never do, die and then live. And that now in your mercy, not only is he alive to be alive simply, but he is alive to ever minister on our behalf. Press upon your dear saints at Kingsway this confidence that we would not toy with sin, that we would not indulge our flesh, but we would put it to death, these things that Christ has died for, and that we would live in the forgiveness and assurance he's given in the gospel in obedience to you. For this people you've bought by your blood, may they honor you as we live together for you this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.